Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of one of our 2020 Elul study classes. The world, as you know, has gone to hell. Um, just in case you didn't know that, if you've been listening to the news, we are coping with three phenomenal catastrophes that in any other year, each one of them would be something, would be the news story. One is a major health crisis. One is a major financial and economic crisis. And one is a major social crisis. And people turn to people like me and Rabbi Graber and Rabbi Schatz and others and say, what does my tradition teach me about coping with catastrophe? And what I want to share with you is that the Jewish people are pretty good at coping with catastrophe. We've certainly had our share of practice in coping with catastrophe. And what I'd like to do today is to offer a reading of the biblical prophets in that vein. Now, let's begin someplace else, and then I'll come back to the prophets in just a moment. Fifty years ago, I went off to college. Fifty years ago was the summer before I went off to college, and I remember that the college sent me a, um, a memo uh, saying, we'd like you to read a book over the summer so that you'll be ready for college in the fall. And the book was a slim volume with a very daunting title. It was called The Structure of Scientific Revolution, and it was written by a Princeton scientist, a Princeton physicist by the name of Thomas Kuhn. And I started reading this book, and it was almost unintelligible to me, but I was working at Camp Ramah, and my co-counselor, Henry Rabinowitz, a beautiful soul, was a math major at Harvard, and he understood these kinds of things. And he explained to me what, what Kuhn was trying to say in this book. I promise you we'll get to Judaism in a minute. And what Kuhn was trying to say in this book was something very important. And when I got to college, I realized how terribly important this was at that moment of history, in the middle of the 1960s revolution. The, Kuhn wanted to say that science, in our conventional idea, grows by discoveries. But Kuhn said that's not true. Science doesn't grow incrementally. Science doesn't grow by this discovery added to this discovery added to this discovery. What happens is, is that science looks at the world with a certain frame of mind, a certain way of organizing reality. And he used a word which then became a very important part of our vernacular, the word paradigm. Paradigm is the way that science organizes reality and creates a certain set of questions for investigation. So in science, for example, there was a paradigm of astronomy that was put together by an Egyptian astronomer named Ptolemy. And Ptolemy understood that the Earth was in the center of the universe and surrounded by spheres, the sphere of the moon, the sphere of the sun, the sphere of the stars. And when we look up at the sky, we're looking through all those spheres and we can see the constellations. And with each discovery, Ptolemy's astronomy got a little more complicated because it had to accommodate for all of these interesting, strange things that didn't quite fit his theory, but the theory was flexible enough to accommodate. Then came along the telescope, and Galileo looked into the telescope, and he saw that Jupiter has moons, and that can't be, according to Ptolemy's uh, astronomy. And at that moment, the paradigm of Ptolemy's astronomy exploded. Paradigms explode when facts come to bear that simply can't be explained. They're called anomalies. And that's when Copernicus comes in and offers us a new paradigm for how the universe, the astronomical universe, is organized. Same thing happened in physics. Isaac Newton was the dominant physics. And then came along the whole world of atomic and subatomic particles that don't behave the way Newtonian physics would have us understand things behave. And Newtonian physics gave way to Einsteinian physics to the physics of relativity and to quantum mechanics. Same thing happens in psychology, although never has been a dominant paradigm in psychology, but you have a Freudian paradigm and you have a Jungian paradigm and then you have B.F. Skinner who offers us a behavioral paradigm and all of the various parallel paradigms in the same way. We organize our world that way. And the reason why this book was so important and 
I read it at the end of the 1960s as I was going off to college in a, in a, to, to a very countercultural place, is because that's not just a description of science. It's a description of how we organize our world. We organize our world with a certain sense of, of, of how the world is. We have a map in our heads of how the world works. And what's most important, if you ever got lost at the mall and you find that big stanchion with a map of the mall and you want to look for two things, where can I find Victoria's Secrets and that big orange spot that says, you are here. And now I can figure out where I am in the mall. And a story, a narrative does that for me. It tells me who I am and where I am in the world and how my world is organized. Well, catastrophes come. And when a catastrophe comes, it's more than simply the destruction of an institution. It's more than just the destruction of a physical building. It's more than a social reorganization, a disturbance in the social life because something that was precious to us was taken away from us or was destroyed. Catastrophe forces us to recognize our narratives, our identity, our paradigm, and it blows it apart. Catastrophes blow apart our sense of how the world works, who we are in the world, what's going on in the world, how does the world, what, what does the world mean, who, do, who am I in the world, what do I mean in the world? What I want to suggest to you, and I'll get to this at the very end, but I'll probably forget, so I'll tell you now, is that the current set of catastrophes is more than just a health crisis and an economic crisis. This is forcing us to reconsider who we are as Americans, what American society is all about, what holds us together as a society. What makes this moment so difficult is not just that we're stuck at home and can't go out except with masks on our faces. What makes this so very hard is that this isn't supposed to happen to the world's most technological, powerful society. This challenges our sense of who we are. Now, as Jews, we know this. As Jews, we have an intuitive sense of how to survive these moments because that's what Jewish history really is about. Most people read Jewish history as paradigm, as there's a sort of model of loving God and doing God's will and doing mitzvot, and that's what Jewish history is about, but that's not really what it's about. The real story of Jewish history is meeting these moments when we had to reorganize our world, reorganize our sense of reality, find a new paradigm for Jewish life. And we got really good at this. And I'm going to suggest that it's a good time to look back at those moments in Jewish history so that we can share this wisdom with the people who live around us, with the America that we're living in. Now, today what I want to do is take a look at a certain group of people who were particularly good at helping Jews, helping Israelites, reorganize their world and find a new organizing paradigm for helping them live in the world and find meaning in their lives. And I mean the biblical prophets. Now, very typically, when, when rabbis teach the biblical prophets, we teach them as champions of social justice, which they certainly were. They certainly were. But today, I want to teach the biblical prophets in a very different way. I want to suggest that the biblical prophets knew that life was about to change radically for the people of Israel, that, that the biblical prophets perceived that the two great empires of the ancient Near East, Mesopotamia on the north and Egypt on the south, were rising again. And that was going to not only change the political landscape of ancient Israel, but it was going to challenge our sense of who we are. You see, as long as Egypt and Mesopotamia weren't doing very much, we could go around saying that we're the chosen people of the God of the universe. We can talk about how important we are. But what happens when you have a sense of yourself as the chosen people of the God of the universe and suddenly you find yourself weak, impotent, marginal? You find yourselves not at the center but at the periphery of history. How do you deal with that cognitive dissonance? How do you make sense of the world that you live in if suddenly the world that you live in doesn't run by the rules that you always assumed it was going to run by? And that's going to be the problem that the prophets are going to take up. 
The prophets are going to warn Israel to do tshuva, to change their ways in advance of this catastrophe that's coming. And, and most of the time we read the prophets as castigating the people and demanding tshuva or else. They're threatening and they're warning. But I want to suggest something very different. I don't think they're just warning. I think they're planting the seeds of new paradigms so that when the catastrophe comes, because it was pretty much inevitable that it was coming, that we would be ready for it and able to survive the catastrophe ideologically, philosophically, by adopting a new model of who we are and who the world is, a new paradigm. And that's what I'd like to suggest today. And I want to understand their genius in doing this because I think that we all need a, we all need a dose of this. So let's take a look at some prophetic texts. And if anybody would like a copy of these texts, if you'll just send an email to me or to Rebecca, uh, to Rabbi Schatz, we'd be very happy to send these. Or else you could check into any motel in North America, open up the top drawer and take the Bible out. While the translation won't be as good as this one, you'll certainly find the same books of the Hebrew Bible. Bible there. So let's begin with Brother Jeremiah. Brother Jeremiah um, is born uh, in, 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 the, uh, in the year six, um, 628, uh, just at the beginning of the end of the Judean state. Right? I'm sorry, so he, he's going to be born after. He's going to be born in, in, the, in the end of the, se- the 7th century, uh, beginning of the 8th century. And, and he's going to be living at a time when he's... <laughs> shot, that's the dog. Theo, sha, sha. Right, that's the, the rabbi's dog. Uh, he's studying today. He's studying the uh, Shulchan Aruf. Um, Jeremiah is, is born into a world that's collapsing. Jeremiah is born into the Judean state in its last years. And he's watching the Judean state collapse. And he's sent by God's word to the temple of Jerusalem to warn the Israelites that this is the end, that they have one last chance to do tshuva. But I'm going to suggest to you that there's something more important going on here. He's, he's coming there to plant the seeds of the, of the self-image, the identity, and the organization, the organizing idea that they're going to need, that they're going to need when, when the catastrophe comes. And the most famous of his speeches is the seventh chapter, which is called the temple speech. Here it is. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand at the gate of the house of the Lord and proclaim this word. So I want you to go right to the core, right to the temple. I want you to go right to the temple of Jerusalem, and, um, and I want you to tell them the truth. And what's going to be the truth that God wants pro- proclaimed? Thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, mend your actions, your ways and actions, and I will let you dwell in this place. You don't live here because you inherited this land. You don't live here because you have some preemptory right to this land. You live here because I put you here, says God. And if I put you here, I can take you out. And your residence on this land is conditioned on your behavior. Your being in this land is conditioned on your faithfulness to the strictures, the laws, the traditions of the covenant. Mend your ways and your actions, and I will let you dwell in this place. Don't put your trust in illusions and say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple Lord are these buildings. Now, what had happened? This is 646, 620 BCE. 20, 40 years before the, the end. In 720, a century earlier, the, the Assyrian Empire, the northern Mesopotamians, came and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and exiled its citizens and, and came in and sieged the city of Jerusalem. And the king, Hezekiah, went to the prophet Isaiah and said, what do I do? And has Isaiah said, don't do nothing. It's going to take care of itself. And sure enough, that morning when Hezekiah woke up, the Assyrian Empire had fled. The Bible says that God sent a plague, but that's not what really happened. What really happened is it was a coup d'etat back in the capital, and the Assyrians left. But what happened is that having, le- having survived that catastrophe in 722, the people of Jerusalem believed nothing can touch us. 
We are the people of God. This is the city of God. God lives in that building, the temple. Nothing can touch us. We are exceptional. We are outside of the rules of history. Nothing can happen to us. And therefore, there was no sense that they were in any way vulnerable to history and no sense that they were responsible to maintain the rules of the covenant. And Jeremiah says, that's an illusion. If you're facing a catastrophe, the first thing you've got to adopt is an attitude of humility. Because what you put your store in where you think you have power is a lie. It's an illusion. It's an illusion. If you, don't, if you really mend your ways and your actions, he said, if you execute justice between one and another, if you do not oppress the stranger, the orphan, and the widow, if you don't shed blood, then only will I let you dwell in this place. You are relying on illusions. You are relying on illusions. You're saying that you are safe. This is his notion. This is his notion. And, and the people's idea. See, the problem with the prophets is you have to play a little bit of jeopardy here. Everybody plays Jeopardy because we only have one side of the conversation. We know what Jeremiah, well, said, or at least he said he said in front of the Temple of Jerusalem that day. We don't know what the other side of the argument was. The other side of the argument was people who said, look, prophet, this is God's place. This is God's house. We are God's people, and we are bringing sacrifices, just like the book of Leviticus told us to do. We are doing it right. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? We are bringing sacrifices. So at the end of this speech, if you just come down here to the, to the, to the last paragraph of this part, thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel. You can hear an argument here, right? Because they're standing in front of the temple carrying these animals because they're going to bring them up for sacrifice. And they say, prophet, what are you complaining about? We're doing the right thing. The book of Leviticus says bring sacrifices. We're bringing sacrifices. Add your burnt offerings and your other offerings and eat the meat. For when I freed your fathers from the land of Egypt, I did not speak with them, command them concerning burnt offerings or sacrifice. Really? You read the book of Leviticus? It's 18 chapters of animal anatomy, of what you do with this kishka and that kotuchas and the nose of the animal and the, the tail of the Really? How you burn it, how you eat it, you eat it with salt, you don't eat it with salt, you spritz the blood this way, you spritz the blood that way. It's the most flacious book in the Bible. And the prophet comes along and says, nah. Why? Because it was never meant to be a talisman, a fetish. And if you turn it into a fetish, if you think that by sacrificing this animal, somehow history won't touch you, you are immune from the moral laws of history. The prophet says, once again, that's an illusion. You have to understand where you really fit in the world. And he's doing something brilliant here because look at the next line. This is what I commanded you. Do my bidding that I may be your God and you may be my people. Walk only in the way that I may enjoin upon you, may go well with you. You didn't listen. You didn't listen, Right? I kept sending prophets. He didn't listen. But he's offering an idea that's going to be very important. In the end, if this temple gets destroyed and it's going to get destroyed, he says, you can live without it. Because the point of religion is not simply these fetishistic symbolic acts. There's no real magical power in sacrifices. Oh, and by the way, in mezuzahs or in red strings or in any of that stuff, the point is to turn your heart toward God and to live a covenantally faithful life. And that idea is going to carry us into exile and protect us for most of Jewish history. That's the first reframing of the paradigm that Jeremiah is doing for us. He's breaking down this paradigm of Judean or Israelite exceptionalism. <clears throat> He's breaking down the idea that the temple is a necessary part of our identity. He's breaking down, most of all, he's breaking down this idea that our power is vested in land and government and institutions. He said, no, the power that you have as a people is vested only in your faithfulness to God. 
and in the covenantal faithfulness. That's where the real identity of this people is. And I'm going to suggest to you as we go through this that one of the things he's inventing here is a completely new identity. If we lose independence, if we lose sovereignty, we can survive that because our identity is as a covenantal people faithful to God and God's Torah, not a people who live in a land and sacrifice in a temple and have a king, not that people. And, and if you want to understand the entire course of Jewish history, here you have it. Jeremiah tells us that we can be a covenantal people without a land, without a temple, that our power is not the sovereign power of a military the sovereign power of a land and a government and a state and a king, that our power is the spiritual power of our adherence and faithfulness to God's covenant and to the Torah. And that ideology is going to last us from 586 BCE when the Babylonians will come at the end of the book of Jeremiah and destroy the temple until 1897 when another prophet named Theodore Herzl is going to rise up and say, now the world has changed again, and we need to change the paradigm. And don't forget that Zionism was a remarkably powerful change in the paradigm, in the organizing principle of Jewish life, because what it said was it's time to return to our land and to sovereignty. Let's take another quick look at a couple of other prophets and how they understood the shift in the paradigm. And then I'll be glad to take some questions and counter sermons, and you can tell me why I'm wrong. Um, let's take another one. Catastrophe is reframing. The big implication of small things. The people who heard the prophets were not bad people. The people who heard the prophets were not practicing radical evil. The people who heard the prophets were living in cities. And those cities had the exact same urban evils that we all know. The difference is that just as we can walk down the boulevard and see a homeless person sleeping in a doorway, just as we can walk down, uh, can drive down a freeway or a highway and see a dilapidated neighborhood with a dilapidated school that's overcrowded and underfunded, just as we can hear stories about how people have no uh, health care and have a difficult time obtaining medicines, and we shrug our shoulders and say, "That's the that these are the social inequities of living in an urban society." The prophets couldn't. One of the one of the elements of prophecy is not that these people were such great orators talking. That's rabbis. One of the things these guys could do was listen. They could hear the cry of the child in that kindergarten who doesn't have what he or she needs. They could hear the sigh of that mother taking that child to the hospital waiting room and waiting for hours. They could hear the, 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 the painful groan of an empty stomach of a hungry person living on the street, and it drove them crazy. What, what, the, what the prophets perceived was what was socially invisible to all the rest of us. Here's the prophet Amos. Now, Amos lives a, a century before Jeremiah, and he lives, and he, he's from the south. He's from Tekoa, but he goes north, and he stands in the streets of Samaria, which was a powerful and wealthy country. And he starts giving a sermon, and the sermon's just brilliant. I just gave you the end of it here. He starts by saying, for three transgressions of the Syrians, for four, I'm going to destroy them. And this is what they were like. And he goes through each of the neighboring peoples, and you can see a crowd gathering around this preacher because they don't like any of these people, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Amorites, all the ites. They don't like any of them. And then finally, he comes to Israel itself, and he says to the people, for three transgressions of Israel, three transgressions I was willing to overlook, four, no. Because they've sold for silver those whose cause was just and the needy for a pair of sandals. That's a brilliant line. And they, and they, you who trample the heads of the poor into the dust of the ground and make the humble walk a twisted course. And now he's going to give us an example of the, the worst case scenario of injustice and the perversion of faith. Father and son go to the same girl, 
and thereby profane my holy name. They recline by every altar on garments taken in pledge and drink in the house of their God wines bought with fines they imposed. Hear this word, O people Israel, that the Lord has spoken you concerning the family I brought up in the land of Egypt. You alone I have singled out of all the families of the earth. That's why I've called you to account for all your iniquities. Now, the, the, the reference, of course, is if you live in a village, everybody knows each other. If you live in a village, everybody knows each other, and everyone um, understands where each other's come from. And so you don't have something like prostitution in a village because everybody knows that girl and her mother and her family and her father, and there's no anonymity in a village. So you can't have the kind of things that you have in a big city where women sell themselves for whatever reason, in order to protect their families, in order to, to survive. And father and son is a bar mitzvah gift. He gives her a, you know, he, he gives his boy a woman. I mean, the, the kind of immorality and the, the degradation of humanity, the rendering of a woman socially invisible. So she becomes simply an object, a, 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 a toy for this man and his son. And then, of course, you're not permitted to take the widow's garment and pledge, according to the Torah. You're not permitted to take the poor person's garment and pledge. But not only do they take them, but they take them to the altar, spread them out, and have a picnic there. And that drives the prophet crazy. So what the prophet is trying to help us understand is that catastrophe doesn't just happen on the macro level. When you listen to the news and you say, oh, it's 150,000 people that have died of the COVID virus and this God knows how many that have it, and businesses that have failed, jobs that are ended, and unemployment insurance that's been canceled, what the prophet would have us do is look at the micro. Tell me about one family living in a bad neighborhood. And he needed that job. She needed that job. She can't afford the rent. The, the supermarket is hard to get to. It's understocked. It's, there's a long line to get to it. Her children are hungry. There's no school for her kids. Look at the micro level. Look at the catastrophe on the level of human souls and not simply on the larger social level. So what I'm trying to suggest is that what the prophets are asking us to do is to reframe the experience and to see it as the, as, 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 calling us to put aside the paradigms that we were um, used to thinking about and to think in different terms, to think in completely different terms um, about who we are and what we are and to understand what it is that's really going on here. For the people of Israel, they looked at the approaching of the, the pro approach of the Babylonian Empire and they thought that this was a military battle. But for the prophet, it wasn't a military battle. For the prophet, it was a question of whether we can have enough sufficient social solidarity to survive a complete change in the landscape of our politics and whether we can hold on to each other and express enough trust in each other and enough sense of care for each other and enough sense of commitment to, to a covenantal vision of a just society that whatever is going to happen to us with the Babylonians we will maintain a sense of our identity as a community. That is the, the reframing of catastrophe that the, um, that the prophets ask us to, um, to imagine. So let's move a little farther ahead now. This is a meditation in chapter 27 on what, um, on what prophecy um, is all about, but I want to move on to the next piece of it. When the prophets met catastrophe, they met catastrophe with a theology that we're going to find very disturbing. It's the theology of Tisha B'Av, and it's the reason why many modern Jews find Tisha B'Av, ninth day of Av, the day of Jewish mourning and, and, and commemoration of Jewish catastrophe, so very difficult. The basic theology is God runs the universe, and therefore, if anything bad happens to us, it's because we're being punished. And if we're being punished, then what we need to do is to repent our sins. And even if we don't know what those sins are, we need to repent. Now, the, the later tradition added a piece to this, which is sometimes you can be punished for the sins of your ancestors, which is even more neurotic than Jews usually get. 
and and this and this idea and and this was the the dominant Jewish theology for most of Jewish history, which is why on Tisha B'av we fast and we recite prayers of repentance. I mean, the song that we sing over and over and over again on Tisha B'av comes from the last chapter of the book of Echa, the book of Lamentation, which is Hashivenu Adonai Alecha Venashuva Chadesh Yamenu Kekedem. Bring us home, and we'll do tshuva. If we do tshuva, God, stop punishing us. Now that that idea that was the Jewish that was in some cases still is the Jewish way of reading history until the Holocaust, and the Holocaust really blew that apart. Emil Fackenheim, the great Canadian philosopher, basically argued that to think that in any way the Holocaust is God's punishment of a sinful Israel, which would make of Hitler and his men a sort of tool of God's punishment, that's just too obscene a thought. So we have set aside that theology. And moderns generally don't think about history as the will of God. We think of history as the work of social and economic and political forces. But there's one virtue to this, and I want to speak on its behalf for a moment. I realize completely that it's morally incredibly impossible and deeply psychologically neurotic to say it's our fault. It's our fault. Everything that happens to us is our own fault. But there's one piece of it I think which is worthwhile, which is this idea that the prophets say again and again that catastrophe is a process of refining us, of purifying the people. Put it this way, catastrophe can force us to look deep inside. I think it's really interesting, and maybe you've reflected on this. So in the middle of this pandemic, and in the middle of this, um, this the financial crisis that has accompanied it, that you had this uprising of the Black Lives Matter movement, this Black Lives Matter um, ideology, and because partly because the, the, the catastrophe the, the health the health crisis affects minority communities much worse than uh, more wealthy and, and more mainstream communities. But I think also because what catastrophe forces us to do is to question our paradigms, to question our, our identity, to question our narratives. And when we look at our narrative and we think of ourselves as a certain kind of people, but the facts in front of us demonstrate that we're not, and that offers us a chance to go back to basic principles, to go back to foundational principles and ask, well, who are we? And what are we about? And what does make us who we are? Which is one of the reasons why I'm so glad you're all here, because, because this high holiday is going to be the most extraordinary high holidays we've ever had. I mean, one friend of mine quipped to me, he said, you know, it's ironic. He said, you know, every year we come to shul and can't wait to get out. And this year we're out and can't wait to get back. It's going to be the first time in American Jewish history and maybe the first time in history in a very, very long time that Jews are not going to be in shul. The Jews are not going to be gathering in synagogue to pray for the new year, to repent our sins from the last, to reflect on who and what we are, that we're going to be doing this from home. Some of us by Zoom, some of us just alone in our backyards, that we're going to make our homes into synagogues. But I think it's a profoundly powerful moment because the, the pandemic and the economic crisis that's coming, that's part of it, and, the, and, the, and the, the, the uprising of social demonstrations has asked us, at least as Americans, to really consider who we are, what we're about, what makes us who we are. And as Jews, this is something that we're used to doing. We actually have an exquisite vocabulary for asking those kinds of questions. Ma'ani, umani, mekochi, what is my life and what is my strength and what is my power and what, where do I fit in God's universe? And this is what the prophets would ask us to do. The prophets would ask us to think about returning to basic principles. So here you have um, Isaiah 9. Yeah, for those of you who are Torah fans, this is the Haftorah you read for Parshat Kedoshim. And the only reason I know that is that this was my Haftorah when I was a kid back in the last century. And listen to this reframing. Listen to the way Amos reframes in the same way that Jeremiah reframed. He said, remember, he's talking to people who keep saying to him, Prophet, what are you fetching about? We're good people. 
We pray, we, we offer sacrifices, we observe God's mitzvot. Yeah, right, there's poverty, there's always poverty, there's inequality, there's always inequality. You know, we're, but we're still special, we're God's people. And the prophet shows up with the most remarkable statement. He says, to me, you Jews, you're just like Ethiopians. <laughs> you know, I brought you up from Egypt. I brought Philistines from Kaftor. The Philistines came from Crete. That's where they started. I brought the Arameans from Kir. You think you're special because I brought you out of Egypt? I bring people all over the damn place, right? I, I bring people. I move populations all the time. You're not anybody. The only reason you're anybody is because I gave you a covenant, which you've now violated. Right? The Lord God has his eye upon a sinful kingdom. I'll wipe it off the face of the earth. But, and here's the word, I will not wipe it wholly out. Now, again, yes, it's neurotic to think that the Assyrians are coming because God sent them. But you see, what the prophet's going to say to them is, this is a chance to return to basic principles. Because you're not going to survive the military battle. You're not going to survive as a military power. But if you survive as a faith community that really understands who and what you are in the world, you could survive. For I will give the order and shake the house of Israel through all the nations as one shakes sand in a sieve. Isn't that a great image? What is diaspora for? It's for purifying us. Exile, gullus, is a process of purification. Right? And all the sinners of my people shall perish by the sword who boast never shall the evil overtake us or come near us. So what he's saying is those people who still believe in their own military power, those people who believe in their those people who are not willing to stop and look at the events of the day with some humility and say, I'm called upon to be a bigger person at this moment, to give up my own personal interests. Yes, I'm talking to all of you who refuse to put on a goddamn mask when you walk outside because you think it's not in your bailiwick to put on a mask. Prophet says, they're the people that are going to be left behind. And then when I lose all those people, I will again set up the fallen booth of death. That's the, by the way, that's the section of the Birkat Amazon that we say on, on Sukkot, right? Yakim Sukkat David Hanofelet. I will mend its breaches and set its ruins anew and build it up firm in days of old, so they shall possess the rest of Edom, and all the nations shall attach themselves to my name. And a time is coming when the and he gives all the beautiful prophecy of messianic, um, messianic um, prosperity and goodness. What the prophet is doing is helping us understand ourselves in different ways. And that's what we have to be able to do this coming high holidays. We have to look at the pandemic not just as a, not just as a, um, as a health crisis or an economic crisis or the invitation to a social crisis, but as the invitation to a self-evaluation collectively and individually of who we are and what we are and how we fit into the world, and what our role is, and what we've learned from this. What have we learned from this experience? When we tell this story to our children and grandchildren a generation from now, when they say to us, what did you learn? What, what did it teach you? What are we going to say? What, what is this going to help us say? One last piece of prophecy, and then I promise you I will get a few questions. I'm really good at avoiding questions. So at the end, the prophets offer us hope. This is one of the characteristics of Israelite prophecy. Israelite prophecy never ends pessimistically. Every section ends with hope. And each of the prophets has their own way of putting the hope. And just give you three brief, brief versions. This one, Ezekiel. Now, remember who Ezekiel is. Ezekiel himself is a symbol of hope because Ezekiel is a, is a prophet of the exile. Ezekiel is preaching in Babylon to the people who are exiled in Babylon. And the idea that God's word can reach you in Babylon already tells you something, that God is not localized, that this really is a global God with a global reach and a God who has a message for the whole world. And this is the famous prophecy of the dry bones. You all have heard this before, right? He said, O mortal, can these bones live? 
And he said, you know, and he said, prophesy over the bones. So he prophesied. And while I was prophesying, suddenly there came a sound of rattling and the bones came together flesh on flesh and skin over them and breath. And he said, prophesy to the breath. Breath in Hebrew is wind, is ruach. And thus come, O breath, the four winds, and breathe into these slain that they may live again. Now, anyone who takes this literally and thinks this is a, a prophecy of Trias Amesim hasn't read the rest of the prophecy. This is a symbolic allegory. I prophesied as God commanded me, the breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast multitude. And God said to me, O mortal, these bones are the house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up, our hope is gone, we are doomed. And the reason I bolded that, if you take a look at it, is our hope is gone is avda tikvatenu. Avda tikvatenu, anybody recognize those words? So when Zangwill wrote the words to, um, uh, to, to hatikva, he wrote lo avda tikvatenu. That's the the Zionism was the was the was the was referring to this specifically. The guys, the early Zionists were were anti-religious, but they knew their Bible for sure. Zionism was the was was the was the fulfillment of this prophecy. It's the people Israel. Thus says the Lord God, I'm going to open your graves and lift you out of your graves and bring you to the land of Israel. That's, by the way, why everybody wants to be buried on the Mount of Olives and why they put Israel dirt in your grave and why they point you toward Israel because this, this comes from the literal reading of this. But that's not what it is. He's not talking about literal resurrection. He's talking about the collective resurrection of the Jewish people, that we have not been destroyed by the experience of diaspora, but, but we will return one day to the land. We'll return to that sense of collective life. In a similar way, Jeremiah, the prophet who is so brutal on the people, he is he comes back at the very end with a beautiful prophecy of um, of return and a beautiful prophecy of of rebuilding and and the one that you know well is is it's the last of the brachot we say at a wedding three times in the prophecy of Jeremiah he says to the people when the destruction comes it's going to be so terrible never again will the, will the hills of Jerusalem the hills of Judea or the streets of Jerusalem hear the sound of brides and grooms and the sounds of joy and gladness and at the end after the destruction comes, he gives the exact same phrase, except instead of saying, Lo Yishama, he says, Od Yishama. I promise you once again, the world will be filled with joy and gladness, brides and grooms. And we sing that at the end of a wedding, because every bride and groom who stands together beneath a chuppah is a substantiation of Jeremiah's prophecy of hope and rebuilding. And then the most famous one is this one which you actually all know, you just don't know where it came from. This is Isaiah 2. And what does Isaiah say? In the days to come, the mount of the Lord's house shall stand firm above the mountains. Now that's ironic because if you've ever been to Jerusalem, the Temple Mount is not only a small, I mean, it's what we call in California a hill, you know. It's not, it's not even the biggest mountain in Jerusalem. Mount Scopus is way over it, right? And he says, no, 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 one day it's going to be the biggest mountain in the world. And tower above the hills, and all the nations shall gaze on it with joy. And the many people shall go and say, Come, let us go to the mount of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. All of the peoples of the world are going to come up to Jerusalem. And they're all going to stand at the foot of the mountain together. And we're all going to say, Let's go up to the mountain. That he may instruct us in his ways, and we may walk in his paths. Because everyone is going to realize that they have to abide by these laws. Otherwise, the world is lost. And here's the line you all know. For instruction shall come forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Ki mitzion Torah, udvar Adonai Where do you hear those words? You hear them in the liturgy. What liturgy? When we open the ark and take out the Torah in a synagogue. So what's happening when we're doing that? When we open the ark and take out the Torah in the synagogue, we are rehearsing for that moment when it won't just be us and the Rabinowitz Bar Mitzvah family coming up to the Torah, but all of humanity will come up to the Torah 
all of humanity will come, that he may judge among the nations and arbitrate for the peoples, and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation. They shall never again know war. Our Torah service is a rehearsal for that. And what you're saying at that moment is that we are the vanguard of this messianic revolution. But why, what's interesting, if you just read this prophecy very carefully, is where are we in this prophecy? You would imagine that a prophet of a nation with a deep sense of nationalism would say, one day with God's help, we will conquer the world. That's not what it says. There's no... There's no fantasy of conquest. There's no fantasy of, because what we recognize is that that's not where real power lies. We are one of the nations at the bottom of the mountain, coming together with all the nations of the world to come to understand that we share a very small planet. And we better figure out how to get along with each other. Because without a basic sense of human solidarity, we will not survive on this planet. And that's the only way we will survive on this planet. And in that prophecy, what makes that prophecy so very interesting is that we're just one of the nations. We just got a head start. We just got 3,800. We got the Torah 3,800 years before everybody else did. We got the Torah. We got the first edition. We got the preview edition. And that's what makes thus, that's what makes the Israelite people unique. What happens in all of these prophecies is that the prophet is not only warning and castigating and cajoling and begging us to do tshuva. I actually think in a certain way that is a secondary function. What they're doing is planting the seeds of a new self-understanding. If you say to the Jewish people, you're not a state anymore with a land and a temple. You're a people with a covenantal prophecy, a covenantal commitment. You can survive under any political circumstances. That power doesn't lie in armies. That power lies in a basic sense of social solidarity, of the connections that are drawn between people in a society, of a sense of, of caring for the neighbor and caring for the other, and most of all, caring for those who are disenfranchised and disempowered. That the little things matter as much as the big things. That the real impact of a catastrophe is on the people who have the least the least to lose, but the least amount of power to, 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 to cope with it. The reframing of, of, of our own self-understanding and reframing of the map of the world, a new paradigm, is what the prophets are offering us to do. And I want to suggest um, that that's exactly what this yontif has to be about. And I, and I want you to, I, and I, I want to ask you to do this for yourselves, and I also suggest that we do this collectively. Who are we? We are the most powerful nation that's ever been in the world with the most powerful technological prowess, and yet a virus knocked us flat. What does that tell us about real power, about who we are as Americans, about what we owe each other as Americans? What does that tell us about Jews? What is our role as Jews in all of this? What do we have to teach this society and teach the world? And, and, and what have we learned about ourselves and our families from all of this? What catastrophe does is push us to see these basic principles and to reimagine who we could be, who we might be, and what we can come out of this in a very different way. The prophets were hopeful at the end because they had this profound, profound belief that you can come out of a catastrophe wiser and stronger and deeper than before, that sometimes catastrophe can actually teach teach something valuable. And I think that's a lesson that we might want to learn. All right. I have managed to take up 55 minutes of the hour. So all 36 of you have five minutes to ask me questions. And I have five minutes to try to evade your answers. And I'm delighted to do that. And I'm going to let Rebecca be the question master mistress. And so you can take, take this for me. Go ahead. Great. Yasha Koach, first of all. Um, and Rick has raised his hand. So we can start with, start with Rick. Great, thank you. Both rabbis, thank you. So I wanted to go back to the, the, the first slide that you showed of Amos and the Shema that I saw there in verse uh, 1 of uh, chapter 3. Uh, Hear, O Israel, I, I saw there. So 
that triggered the Shema in my head and the Vyahavta. So my question is, do we think nowadays that Amos, when he was talking to his congregation there, was he um, calling up the Shema Vyahavta to them? Were, were they literate that way, that, that he saw that uh, connection? Because then the father and son with the love, that's not the kind of love you're supposed to show, um, is my question. <laughs> yes. Pick me off. No, yes. I, I, I think yeah. that he understood. Look, these words were, these words were in, in the culture. And every, every culture has words and words that grasp our attention right away. And I think you're exactly right. I think that in using Shema Yisrael in that phrase, he knew exactly what he was saying. And the, the image of father and son going to the same girl is an image of the degradation of that woman. But it's also the image of the of the dissolution of family life, and and I think that what he's talking about is a culture that becomes so arrogant that it thinks that it can live without families, and it doesn't understand that it that that every society is built from the ground up. It begins with the deep love and affiliation and affection and protection in family life. And when you dissolve that, those bonds within family life, then the foundation of any society is, is, is eroded. And, and that's what he's talking about there. Vivian has a question in the chat um, that says, is it fair to conclude that the collective words of the prophets warn us to follow the covenant's teachings regarding how we behave toward one another over the ritualistic laws? It's not a question of one over the other. It's a question of what is the ultimate function of ritual law. If the function of ritual law, magic, I mean, the, 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 the guy who comes to you and says, the reason you had a catastrophe is because there are faulty letters in your mezuzah. Pay me a certain amount of money and I'll give you a new one, Right. I'm not blaming any religious group in our community for doing that, understand? Um, but, but, you know, that's magic. And, and those who think that ritual is magic, that, that, it, that it has some sort of power to protect you. Maimonides, not me, Maimonides in the 12th century, greatest rabbi who ever was, the Babe Ruth of rabbis, or Babe Ruth was the Maimonides of ballplayers. <laughs> Maimonides says that's a shanda. I mean, that, that's, that's an offense to God because you're taking a symbol whose job it is to direct your heart toward God and toward mitzvah, and instead you're turning it into a talisman, an amulet, a, a, a rabbit's foot. Ritual's purpose is to purify us. That's what the Talmud teaches. In the Talmud, they ask the Rabbi Rav, who's one of the greatest, the first generation of Amorim, do you think God really cares how I kill a chicken? I mean, God has a universe to run. You think he cares whether I buy empire or whether I buy foster farms? And Rav's answer is, yeah, God cares. You know why? Because the way that you kill a chicken is the way that you're going to treat anything that's alive in the world. And it's the way that you're going to treat human beings. And step by step, ritual's job is to teach us ethics. It is to remind us of our, our, our ethical connections with each other. That's the purpose of ritual. My teacher, Harold Showais of Blessed Memory, his question all the time was, what for? What for? What kind of human being does this particular religious commitment or religious symbol or religious practice, what kind of human being does it shape? And if it shapes a human being of compassion and conscience, then it's valuable. But it shapes a human being of exclusive, of exclusive, exclusive behavior, of excluding. If it makes us nationalistic and bitter and, and angry about reaching out of our obligations to reach out beyond ourselves, then it's, then it's worthless. Then it's not just worthless. It's as the prophet said, it's an obstacle to our godliness. And that's got to be the driving question of ritual. And by that, you understand, you know, that's my attitude toward halakha. Halakha means it's supposed to get us someplace. That's why it's called halakha. It's supposed to, you know, lashon, you know, lalechet. It's supposed to get us someplace. It's supposed to be, make us into certain kinds of people. When it works, it works exquisitely well, right? Uh, you know, a mezuzah doesn't protect your house. Listen, I had a really, really nice mezuzah on my house 25 years ago, and it fell down in the Northridge earthquake. The house, the mezuzah is still there, but the house fell down. <laughs> 
the purpose of a mezuzah is that you'll stop on the way in and you'll stop on the way out and you'll just read the first word. And the word is Shema, right? Which means I come home from a very difficult day at work and I see the mezuzah and it reminds me that the people who live in that house are the most important people in my life. Shema, and then right underneath the word Shema, it says Ve'ahavta, love them. Listen to them and love them. That's the purpose of a mezuzah. All these good questions and no time. What is the fun? What is yeah. the function of the synagogue in time of series? Girl, some sometime Rabbi mentioned earlier. There's a connection between catastrophe and free will. Um, uh, everyone else questions. All right, all right. The function of the synagogue in this time. Um, I think that um, all of us separated as we are into our individual homes, practicing um, social distancing, are desperate to connect in some fashion, and I think there's no better institution there's no institution better better poised to help us do that and no institution that has a more lofty goal right now than the synagogue and you know i like th- and even though it's a greek word i like synagogue i mean big knesset says the same thing it's the connector we need to connect with each other and we need to be reminded that we connect with each other and we need to be reminded that our lives are not bound by, all, by the mask i'm wearing but that I'm, I touch other human beings in the course of my being, and I need other human beings in the course of my life, and that's the purpose of a synagogue right now. So I'm going to make sure I'm going to I'm going to give you a commercial. Here's my commercial. If you haven't joined your synagogue, go join. If you join one, join another one, because right now synagogues are dying, and I'm not I'm not making that up. I'm, I'm not. I I have a good sense of humor, but this is this is deadly serious now. This is going to be this is going to be a, a terrible, terrible, terrible time for congregations because all of our um, all of our sources of financial revenue, all of our sources of material support are compromised. Right? I can't bring you into the synagogue for high holidays. I don't know if anybody's going to enroll their kids in our schools, right? And I don't know whether we're going to be able to get people to give contributions because I can't talk to them face to face. So if you believe in synagogues, go join three or four of them. Okay, please, and and if you can afford it to give a contribution, just send a few bucks to the rabbi and say, Rabbi, go find a family that's lost their job and make sure they can put their kids in our school. And here's a here's a year's tuition. Okay, you really need to do this because it, we're going to have. Here's my nightmare: that kids are going to grow up from this generation. And they're going to say to the to their friends and their families and their kids, when my family lost their job. When we were evicted from the house, when we didn't have means of support, the shul wouldn't let us in because we couldn't pay the tuition or the fees. So I don't want that to happen to any Jewish child. Those of you who are part of my shul have heard me say a thousand times, it is a hell of a lot easier to raise dollars than to raise Jews, right? It's much easier to find dollars than to find Jews. And if we lose a generation of kids who walk around saying that when my family was in trouble, nobody from the shul reached out to help us, that's going to break my heart. It's absolutely going to break my heart. Um, Rabbi mentioned connection between catastrophe and free will. Yeah, I mean, what I'm suggesting is this. The traditional theology of the Jewish people was that catastrophe was brought as a punishment for our sinfulness. I don't believe that. I don't know if anybody post-Holocaust can believe that. But what I do believe is that what the prophets are asking us to do is to see catastrophe as the opportunity for refinement, which is to ask ourselves some very deep and powerful questions about who we are and what we are and what kind of world we live in, and to examine the narratives, the, the, the way we describe our world, the paradigms, the sort of the, the way we understand ourselves in the world and the way we understand how the world works, and to reconsider different ways of understanding that different ways of considering. I, I was standing in line at the market at the beginning of this catastrophe. We went to the market to stock up, right? And, and there's, a, there's a guy behind me with a package of toilet paper. He found the one package of toilet paper at a Ralph supermarket. And there's a lady ahead of me, and she's complaining to the clerk that she has three kids at home and no, to- no toilet paper. So the guy rips open the package of the toilet paper, and he tossed his six rolls over me into her basket. We all cheered because he got 12 points, you know, and, and the clerk looks at him and she looks back and says, what do I owe you? And the, and the guy says, come on, you need this more than me. And the clerk looked at it and he, she had to figure out how do you ring up 
six individual rolls of toilet paper. And she said, forget it. Anybody that nice deserves something nice. Go ahead. And it, it, people, people can find that in themselves at this moment. That's what the prophets are asking us to do. Rebecca, it's 12 o'clock here in Los Angeles, wherever it is, where you want. Thank you all for listening, and I wish you a very lovely Elul and a wonderful Yontif and a good new year. And please keep tuning into these broadcasts for rabbis who are um, even more erudite and obscure than me. So thank you all very, very much, and have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you, Rabbi Feinstein. It's always such a pleasure to learn from you and just such a powerful way for us to think about what we are doing for our communities and also what what our communities can and will be hopefully doing for us. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.